0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of John, and we'll continue with a portion of Scripture from John chapter 4, having to do with where we left off last week. I hope you bring your Bibles with you, I hope you do read along, even if uh, there's a slight difference in translation between one to the next, for the most part you're able to read along. Follow along. And that's important because I want you to see that it's there. Uh, That this is from Scripture, this is God's Word. But uh, we'll begin reading John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water, wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus, who had come from Judea to Galilee... He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, "'Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe.'" The official said to him, "'Sir, come down before my child dies.'" Jesus said to him, "'Go, your son will live.'" The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on... The understanding and obedience to His Word. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open Sunday morning, together as a church, we ask that you give us what's necessary to know what this means and to be able to obey it Lord, fit it to our life and may we be obedient to your command. Where it says we need to change, I ask that you give us the understanding to change. Lord, we thank you for your word and for its power, its witness, its gospel. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us today or uh, perhaps first time in a long time, uh, the way we study through God's word primarily is verse by verse. We'll start in the beginning of a book like this one. we start in John 1. And we work our way as long as it takes through each of the verses to understand what the whole book means. Uh, Sometimes it feels long. Sometimes it feels tedious. But it's the only way to get at the true meaning of what the author, inspired by God, meant for us to know. And on some Sundays, it seems as if uh, it's a good way to study. Other Sundays, it, it might draw the question, what's the point of studying certain passages? But one of the benefits of this method is that you get to study not only the well-known passages, you hit all of those, but you you get to study the lesser-known passages between the more well-known passages. And specifically today, that's one such situation. Those first three verses that we read, having to do basically with the setting of a transition between one area to another. Very well-known story, which was Jesus and his discussion with the woman at the well. And then you've got this other well-known story about a man whose son is healed. When we get to chapter 5, it's even more well-known. This man who's uh, diseased at a pool at Bethesda. How he's healed and told to take up his mat and walk. Uh, These are the stories we remember from Sunday school. But I don't think anybody remembers verse 43, 4, and 5 from Sunday school it's a transitional piece but there's things within passages like this that help us understand the other passages better and if we're diligent to make sure we learn the little pieces in between we'll understand the whole thing better Um, but that's where sometimes I feel compelled uh, to forewarn everyone we'll have to set this up Uh, we won't get to the emotional part Or the hook until the end. We'll have to think first, and then maybe we'll feel at the end. But I I promise you, if you don't think at the beginning, the end won't feel much at all. (laughs) That's just the way it works. And life is like that a lot. We'd like to feel our way through life all the time, but there are times where we think our way through things, plan our way through things, so that when we get to certain spaces in our life, what we feel is to its fullest. Instead of cheapened or missed altogether. And that's what this is today. Thinking first, emotions second. So what we'll do is we'll pull apart the pieces of the first three verses. It's own little paragraph. And then we'll look at those last nine. And those last nine, will all the difference will be made by how we understand the first three. At the beginning of chapter four, you could turn back there. It's probably just backward one page. Uh, We're told in the setup what we're going to begin reading in in verse 43. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parentheses although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So at the beginning of chapter 4, we know he's leaving Judea and he's headed for Galilee, and we know the reason why. And then in verse 3, we see the... uh, uh, Actually, verse 4, this departure, somewhat of a layover. And he had to pass through Samaria. And that's where the whole story with the woman at the well uh, is contained. By the time we get to verse 43, after the two days, what two days? The two days he stayed with the Samaritans who asked him to stay. And they were the ones that uh, were brought to him by the woman who went back to town to tell them about this man who told her everything that she had ever done. Uh, and they are wondrously saved, they're believers. After those two days, look at verse 43, he departs for Galilee. So all that in the middle was just basically a layover. What happened in Samaria. Now he's back on the track as was set up at the beginning of chapter. We get back to that narrative. And then you got verse 44 and verse 45. By verse 44, he's actually in Galilee. Now the truth is, From those three verses, it would be a lot simpler, a lot easier, and a lot less to study if verse 44 wasn't even there. That's in parentheses, more than likely, in your translation, which means John is telling us something from behind the scenes that will help us make sense of what's going on better. This is supposed to clear things up, right? Now, if we read it without verse 44... After the two days, he departed for Galilee, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. But then if you include verse 44, for Jesus himself testified, this is something he'd said earlier, that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now if he's going to his hometown, that would be the easiest reading, then what's all this welcome business here? We expect to see something else. If he's not given any honor in his hometown, then there shouldn't be a welcome, right? So what are we to make of that? Is John off a little? Did he get his stories confused? Was Jesus talking about something else? John didn't know any better, so he applied it here when Jesus meant something else altogether. Truth is, uh, there's lots of differing opinions as to how to sort that out. One commentator said that there are no less than 10 different noted authors that have different ideas. And most of the difference in what you do with this has to do with what is meant by the term hometown. Is it in Galilee? In Cana? Nazareth? That region? Is that his hometown? Or is his hometown where he was born? Where was he born? Bethlehem of what? Judea. That's a different province. So if that's where the hometown is, then this wouldn't apply. You'd be welcomed here, and that makes sense. But what about you? Do you consider where you were born your hometown or where you grew up your hometown? Because some of us grow up different places than we were born. I was born here in North Carolina. I grew up in Virginia for 30 years. So even though I love my North Carolina license plate with airplane on it, been waiting on that all my life, Um, I have to say my hometown is in Virginia, in Ringgold. Uh, We we moved away and back to within less than a mile of, of where I spent almost 30 years of my whole life. Now with Jesus, it's true, he was born in Bethlehem, but he spent his time in Nazareth. Jesus of Bethlehem? No, it's Jesus of Nazareth. That's where everybody knew him. So the idea of what's going on behind this honor or no honor having to do with your hometown or in a place where everyone's a stranger, uh, it really fits with the definition everyone would, would agree with. Well, it has to do with the people you know versus the people you don't know. You know, I remember the, the show, TV, it was on forever. I remember it when I was a kid because the reruns were on all the time. and Everybody knew the song. It was Cheers where everybody knows your name. That's supposed to be good, right? I don't know. Sometimes where I don't know that I like a place where everybody knows my, my name. Uh, and there's one place on earth I can go where I can't go to the grocery store, can't go to Walmart, can't go anywhere without my name being called. And that's usually a prelude to a discussion. It might last three minutes. It might last 30. Your milk can get warm while you're... <laughs> listening to someone on and on. So there's a lot of things that go into your hometown, people that know you versus the other. Question is, what pluses and minuses apply to us? What pluses and minuses apply to Jesus? Well, for Jesus, this would be different. And he says as much. He testifies that a prophet doesn't have honor in his hometown. There might be honor for All other types of people, but not for the prophet. Who's the prophet? The prophet's the one with the bony finger that he's usually pointing in people's faces and telling them where they've missed something. They're wrong. They're flat out wrong. Uh, They're going in the wrong direction. That's the business of the prophet. That's the business of Jesus. So if Jesus is going to be declared to be and himself claimed to be the son of God, remember how John set it up? He was in the beginning with God, was God. Nothing was made by Him. Uh, w- without Him, nothing was made that was made. That's how the King James has it. And then by verse 14, He took on flesh and became one of us. Then later we learned to show us the Father. John tells us to take away the sin of the world. You can just imagine what it's like for the ladies who babysat Him. Son of God. Yeah, right. I, I changed His diaper like anyone else's. And think about it. Jesus was human. There's very, very human things that these people are thinking with someone who's claiming to be not human. So if there's going to be some explaining to do and some stumbling blocks for people to just say, I don't know about all this, that would be Galilee, where everybody knows his name, Jesus, but nobody knows his name or title, Christ, or his lineage son of God not just son of David so if this is true this is the way this means even though people differ as to what they think hometown means in honor it's right on par with the Jesus John's been telling us about so far because so far the Jesus that John's been telling us about is so different than anything we would do so here, here's the idea He's going to leave Judea where they disagree with him. He didn't leave because of open persecution. He left in the beginning of chapter 4 because people are talking now about his disciples baptizing more people than John's disciples. So rather than have a division over who's better than who, he leaves because there's a disagreement brewing and it's going to cause some trouble. But he's leaving that disagreement to go to a place where they're going to dishonor him. They're trading disagreement for dishonor. You think if someone told you that in a few years or so you would pray a prayer where you would ask Jesus to help you pray through the possibility of seeking out a position of less honor than the one you're in now. Lord, I'm actually looking for a smaller Sunday school class. Or uh, my position at work. I'd, I'd like less benefits, less recognition. Um... Less thanks, appreciation for what I do. Never in a million years would we ask for that. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's walking away from the crowds, away from any type of recognition that would raise him higher. If he wants to absolutely blow his chances of everybody knowing his name, this would be the way to do it. To go become a laughing stock of everybody that would think, Okay, sure you are the Son of God. Well, that's what he's doing. I do think the best evidence points to Nazareth as the meaning of his hometown. Jesus has said there's no honor for the prophet in his hometown. But when he gets to Galilee, the hometown welcomes him. So what do we do with that? Sounds like it's not working the way we think it should. We would expect to hear something like he's rejected. It's not what we read. We read he's welcomed. So how do we square with this? And the, the short answer is this It's the wrong type of welcome. And it's not the first time he received the wrong type of welcome. If you turn back to chapter 2, uh, we'll see how John tells us Jesus viewed this type of welcome. He's getting it again. And if we look the two of them at the same time, it'll hopefully make sense. It's verse 23 of chapter 2. And again, John is explaining to us what was going on now when he was in Jerusalem now that's the Judean province So the same would be true as to what's going on in Galilee It's just not his hometown when he was at the Passover feast many believed on his name when they saw signs that he was doing that sounds good verse 24 but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people he didn't need anyone to bear witness about man he himself knew what was in man he knew their hearts And he's not reciprocating. That's a bad thing. Point is, he knew the reception was based on the signs, not what the signs were pointing to. Remember the discussion we had about the signs and what they mean? And how nobody really gets excited about signs. And you're on the way to the beach or something. You see the sign on the side of the road that says Smithfields. Great. They got chicken and barbecue. You keep driving on by. Excited about that sign. Now you pull in and you eat the chicken and the barbecue. The sign is pointing to something else. The significance of the sign is wrapped up in the importance of what it points to. Jesus is saying, you're just excited about the sign, but nobody's actually understanding what it points to. Nobody can do these things but God. I'm God's son. I'm here to take away the sins of the world. So if you look at the rest of verse 45... You know, the one that uh, should be pointing to rejection, the Galileans welcomed him. Here's the rest of it. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. That's what we read in verse 23 of chapter 2 when he was at the feast, the Passover feast. This is the same place. Same people, same signs, same reaction. That's what's going on here. It's the wrong kind of welcome so he's still having that dishonor in that they're not honoring him for God's son they're honoring him because of his miracles Jesus was becoming a celebrity is what it was and he's trying to outrun his celebrity status they're wanting more of it don't we act a little weird around celebrities especially when like say Christian celebrities join a church oh we got somebody now people will come It's just something about that. It seems uh, kind of odd. Some of the things that should be worthy of of credit and honor recognition don't get that. Where other things that you should not be proud about get all the attention. Um, Somebody from these parts that wrote a book. I I, I doubt they're as famous as uh, the two guys graduated from uh, Harnett Central who are on YouTube. My kids like watching them too. But that seems to have a wider audience. There was this show in Virginia that we were able to tune into on Discovery Channel and watch certain places we go to or shop and people that we knew. I won't tell you what it was. It's an embarrassment of a show rather than something to be proud about. But there's just something about it. You'd see the guy in town. Ooh, there he is. Look at him. Maybe we get an autograph or a picture or something. Then we'll put that on facebook or whatever so we can say we were next to the guy that everybody knows right y'all had your show not too far from him about the towing company i don't know if you see them around or the, the crew or whatever that's what's going on here but that's not the reason jesus is here he's not for pictures he's not for facebook he's not for entertainment he's here to take away the sin of the world and he had to explain this to people. And sometimes it's very difficult to explain it. And sometimes it's very invasive and hurtful. And the words that came out of his mouth in doing so turned people off. They'd walk away. I, I don't, that man's crazy. But he knows things we don't and what's important and what's not. So let's hear him out. But what we've done already, we, there's two points in this message. We've, we've come to the first one. Actually, we've covered the first one. That is a welcome without honor. And that's what we've just seen demonstrated. Understanding these first verses are going to help us with the next one because the next one's the same thing. Point number two is a request without belief. But it's hard to understand the request without belief without understanding a welcome without honor. So let's look at what a request without belief looks like. So he came again to Cain of Galilee where he'd made water into wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill This man heard Jesus was there, 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now verse 44 was a stumbling block. Verse 48 is just the same. Who says that to a person who's in agony and facing the very real possibility of his son dying? Comes to Jesus out of hope that he might can do something for him. And Jesus says... That's what's wrong with you people. You just want a, a sign. You want a miracle. And that's not why I'm here. He said, of course, if he said it that way, it'd be horrible. Well, that's not exactly the way he says it. But before we get to that point, just, just look at how John sets this up. Jesus is in Cana. That's where he turned water into wine. So the the man who can turn H2O into the compounds necessary to make not just wine, but good wine, as it was described. He's going to also be able to heal this man's son. So he's got power over nature and he has power over the body. But there's this fellow from Capernaum, and that's a full day's journey. Takes about eight hours to walk from point A to point B. You can actually look up Cana and Capernaum over in Israel on the Google Maps and click the button for the walking route. It's about eight hours still. And this was because he'd heard that Jesus was there and that he could heal folks. Now, from the way John sets the story up, it sounds as if this man approaches Jesus out of desperation and need. We get that. That's clear enough. But with little thought as to who Jesus is, as far as he's concerned, he's heard Jesus can perform miracles and such power holds out hope for his son. And that's why he's there. But it's not until after the miracle, when he hears how his son has been healed, that we see any faith that goes beyond the desperation. And we'll hold on to that for a few minutes later. Here's a good spot where we can think about a few things. Does one need the Spirit of God at work in their lives to want their son not to die? Do you need to be saved to want your son not to die? Do you need to know Jesus and who He is and proclaim and confess that He is the Son of God and Lord? No. I don't know that anybody enjoys the thought of their son dying. You don't need to know Jesus to not want your son to die. What about for your marriage to be restored if, if, if that's fallen apart? You don't need to know Jesus to want to end that type of pain what about wanting your kids to grow up with character that's good stuff taught in children's programs at churches let's go for that reason you don't necessarily need to know god or much of the bible to want that it's a good thing you can want that without knowing anything about jesus what about addictions you just keep working on the list there's so many things that we don't need to know jesus To want, if he's got them, we'll go to him and he might give it to us. Not even to say a word as to whether or not we recognize who he is or whether or not we're interested in forgiveness for our sins. Now, do you need the work of God in your life to want Jesus to be the Lord of your life and obey him and have him change your life and transplant your heart, make you a new creature? Yes. Nobody wants that. Not without him working in you to convince you that that's a good thing. So it's obvious where this man is. He's still on the outside of this, not the inside of it. And at this point, he doesn't need to know anything about Jesus. He's got a sick boy. Jesus might be able to heal him. So that's why he's there. It doesn't require that you have any interest in God whatsoever to want things like this. But is that why Jesus is here? Is he here to take care of marriages, heal sick boys, educate children, break addictions? Or is he here to take away the sin of the world by paying for it himself on the cross? That's why he's here. So these things he does in some way to help get you to that. But if that's all he did for you, that would be an incomplete job for him, right? Let's just say with this guy. If he heals his son, which this man may think he owes Jesus more than anyone on the planet, he healed my boy. But if he didn't save his soul or his boy's soul, what has he done other than just run out the clock? That's what's going on here. Now, as to the way Jesus responds to this guy and what he says, you know, you won't believe unless you see signs or or wonders. Um, it makes better sense when we understand that the word in the Greek is plural when he refers to him. Now the ESV it says him. A lot of the translations just simplify it. They know it's plural, and it doesn't damage the wording to use him specifically, because he is speaking to him, but he's using the word plural, so everybody standing there gets to hear it too. He's using a y'all, a you all up a little more north use guys but everybody's in on this right uh he is more or less saying I i think the niv has you people even more direct so he's saying unless you all see signs and wonders you will not believe jesus is speaking to the galileans at large not just this one desperate man in this case the man represents what's wrong with the whole crowd he's in on them too So if we wanted to just kind of pull it out and make it sound as obnoxious to them as we could, what is it with you people? I'm here to take away your sin and all you want are my miracles. That could be the way we would just tease out the the full weight of what is being said. And it really fits quite well if you see the whole argument. It's very clear from chapter 2 many believed in his name when they saw the signs but Jesus on his part didn't entrust himself to them they're not there yet it's all shallow then in the rest of chapter 4 Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast same thing Jesus says in response to all this finally he responds unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe that's the way you're operating here and do we fault them for that? I mean, if Jesus just says He's God's Son, but He never shows us He can do anything that no other man can do, it does have its point. He does have to be miraculous. And He was. And that's the point. It's a sign. But we have to get from the sign to what it's pointing to. And that's where these people haven't done that yet. What was true in Judea is what was true in Galilee the perception that these people had of Jesus was fundamentally flawed It was based on too great a focus on the miraculous now we've done our homework this is the thinking part If you're still tracking with this then we can get into what he actually did for this man and what he can do for any man and how Jesus isn't the hard tough case he's here to answer the call of distress but His way, not our way. And while He's working on us, the process can be somewhat painful because it's not the way we expect it. But look at verse 49. The official said to Him after that comment, Sir, come down before my child dies. That's His second ask and with more uh, emphasis. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live We don't know what happened, if that were the only words that he said, if there's more to it. But the result is the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. So it was enough for him not to ask a third time. He goes. And then the rest of the story, as he's going, he meets his servants. They find out what time the fever left. And then the second believe in this passage, in verse 53, there's believed in verse 50 and there's believed in verse 53, And he himself believed and all his household. That's infinity removed from the first belief. One, he believes maybe it can happen. Two, he believes what the Samaritans believe. This guy's the savior of the world. So a lot happens between that. But Jesus has indicted everybody. Everybody watching. Everybody standing there. So everybody gets a dose of truth that's hard to hear. But then he heals this daddy's little boy. He does heal him. And don't miss that. Or don't get distracted from the process. Of course he's going to heal him. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is here to take away the sin of the world. And if you take away the sin of the world, what goes with the sin of the world? What's the payment for sin? Death. Death. That goes with it too. So he's going to remove sin, but he removes all the things that come as part of sin. When he was healing people, he's taking this on himself. He's going to pay for it on the cross. So of course he's going to answer all along this man's cry for distress, but in a way that benefits this man where he needs to be changed. With the same honesty that Jesus spoke to his mother before he turned water into wine when he told her, What has this got to do with me? This is not why I'm here. But then he did it anyway. She needed to know there's something more important than wine running out at a party. And this man, as hard as it sounds, needs to understand there's more important things than whether his son lives or dies. And that's whether his son and he and his family live or die eternally. That's what's going on. So as if to say, you've come to me because you heard I can heal, You've come to me in your agony, but you are one in a crowd, and you've all got the same interests. Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's what you're all looking for. You've come to me because of your son, but that's because you want something from me for yourself. Remember the idea about the sign. We could ask ourselves, how many of us are here because of what we want from Jesus for ourselves? How many of us are here because we want him for ourselves? Is the sign or what the sign points to? This is hard to hear for this man. The words are severe. Jesus is dealing with this man's heart the same as he dealt with the heart of the Samaritan lady. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't. You've had five before that. Now go tell him about me and that I know what I shouldn't know. He had to deal with the sin issue first, as as horrifying as that might have been. Well, Jesus, with this man, the man takes it a step further. If you don't come, he's going to die. And whether or not this man knew what was going on and what Jesus had said had made its mark, he's flung himself on the hope of Jesus and his power to heal. That's the last thing he's got. Notice here, this is a big deal. Does Jesus do what he asked him to do or does he not do what he asked him to do? What did the guy ask him to do? Come to my house. Did Jesus go to his house? So basically the the exchange would work like this. Uh, You need to come. Unless you see something, you won't believe. Come down now or he'll die. I'm not coming down. You go. He'll be fine. Who talks like that? But what has he done? He has said, you trust my word and you'll have your sign. But I want you to trust first. Sign second. So he goes on his way. It's late in the day. It's about one o'clock. He's going to find out the next day when he talks to his people that meet him halfway. What time did it turn around? One o'clock. He did do what he said he'd do. And what he did was a sign. When your boy's fever leaves, that's a sign, isn't it? But not without his trust first. As hard as that was to hear. And what's the result? Him and his household believes. If you trust my word, you will get your sign. And at this point, this man separates himself from the group of those that Jesus didn't believe in. Now, this is something that's believable To Jesus. Now what does all this mean? How do you conclude a message like this? Well we'll get into some things that we'll look at. Not next week but the week after when we get to chapter 5. And that is a pattern that is beginning to emerge. All through John's uh, gospel here so far. In that there are people hearing what Jesus is saying. But they're reacting in one of two ways. Either it's uh, this shallow belief. Or it's this real substantive belief one Jesus can believe in and one he's not he'll commit himself to one but the other is no good and the difference between the two groups of people and whether it works and they get it or it doesn't and they don't see it at this point has everything to do with whether they're insiders to Judaism and law of Moses ten commandments all all, all the, the stuff in our Bibles from about this point forward, you know, the, the big section, the Old Testament, they're insiders. They've got all that. The ones who are receiving what he's saying are the outsiders. The Samaritans, that's where all the people are coming to believe. Nicodemus didn't. Now it looks like later, it's better, uh, the people at the temple that watched him cleanse the temple, they didn't get it. Some of the disciples are still having trouble with it. The ones who come quickly are the ones on the outside, including this guy. He He's not on the inside. He works for Herod. Okay? So what does that mean? Back to the hometown thing. You know how you can kind of get bent out of shape and pick on the one kid in the class that graduates and gets out of there and it's a really good job and a really good paycheck. I ain't got lucky. He's just like us, right? There's kind of a problem, there's a rub there. So, when you come to a group of people who've been known for centuries as being the ones who God deals with, if you want to know God in heaven, you need to speak Hebrew, right? We're sons of Abraham. You're not telling us anything new, Jesus. Big deal. We got this covered. But he's telling them everything. But they're not getting it. So who would be the modern equivalent of the insiders now in America where we're at? You. You're sitting in a church. You have a Bible in your lap. This is your birthright is... Being born into the south in the Bible Belt, right? All you got to do is go to church and you should get all the stuff that comes with it. I'm all right. I'm going to heaven. I, I pay my tithes. You might have been here a long time and think you've got it all situated. But does the things Jesus say surprise you? Would we be anything like these people? In our attempt to find a church, what are we looking for? Someone that will help us understand the the depth of our sin and the necessity of our repentance and how that Jesus can not only wash our sins away but make us look like him until he takes us home? Or do we try to find the church with the tricks and the perks and the comfortable stuff and more bang for your buck as far as the tithing goes? I mean, come on. It sounds like I'm making fun, but is it that far off? Or can Christians sometimes act like a bunch of spiritual brats? I want this. I want that. Hey, this is happening over here. As if Jesus... All you people want is some type of a sign to be used for yourself. It's not why I'm here. While you're worried about which church is where it's at, Jesus is saying... I'm here for your sins. And I think one of the most dangerous places for people can be in a good old-fashioned church where they could attend all the Sundays of their life and miss the gospel by a mile because they just don't see it. It's not been plain to them. They haven't allowed Jesus to ask that question they don't want anybody to ever ask them. And then once that's uncovered, he'll say, you give me that. I'll go pay for it. And what I'll give you is my righteousness. And I'll expect you to look like a Christian from now on. And then we'll spend the rest of eternity together. But it works that way. Those are the terms. That's how it works. So it seems John is working very hard to convince the Jewish audience that they are in very real danger of missing their spiritual inheritance altogether. Maybe it would be just as good for preachers to make sure that churches understand they could, they could lose theirs as well. Questions we could ask ourselves before we pray. Is your welcome of Jesus Christ without honor? Hey, I want him to fix my marriage. And I want him to educate my kids. And I want all those things that good church people should want. But when it gets right down to me bearing my guts and having him pay for them. I just as soon avoid that. Then there's no honor in that welcome. Number two is your request without belief. What are you asking for? If Jesus was right here and you could ask Him, what would it be for? Save me, or fix my problems. I think it'd be fix my problems for me. And if by grace he gave me the understanding to say, you know what, my problems are. I'm my problem. Fix me. That's my problem. I'm my biggest problem. You fix me, the rest of them will be straight. And I'm glad you're. I'm glad somebody would do it for me, because I sure can't do it myself. So that's John 4, 43 through 50 something. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we ask that you give us the sense to be able to fling ourselves on you not out of desperation for the things we want but out of desperation for the state we're in where we're not where we need to be without your forgiving our sins and making us suitable for your father's presence lord we have so many problems that are connected to these things and from week to week we really do feel like we're in anguish and Lord, you gave us promises through the gospel and through your blood on the cross that you can help us with the things that break our hearts. You can help us when we're in desperation. Depths of despair, perhaps. Lord, you're you're not just the miracle worker. You you bind up the, the brokenhearted. But Lord, help us not to get that before what's most important. And that's our problem with sin. Lord, save us, and then restore us. Lord, if there's somebody in this room who needs to be saved, to see you, to believe you, the real belief, not the shallow type, but the part that they need you as a Savior first and everything else after. Lord, may they not rest until they've answered their questions, searched the Scriptures, talked to the friend that brought them today or one of us that work here at the church who can open a Bible and explain the things to them they need to know. Might this be the day that they believe. Lord, thank you for your word and for what it means to us and for time spent in your house on a Sunday. May you reward us for this that we've done and only for your grace. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, as we close our service today, <clears throat> we pray for your continued grace and mercy. Thank you for the Holy Spirit to lead and guide our lives as we need no further signs of your deity and kingship. Thank you for being able to open our Bibles and have your words so clearly explained to us. We pray today for the ministries of our church and especially today for Bonnie Pearson of Ehad Ministries as she proclaims the message of our Lord through song, drama, writings, and other practical ways. Bless her ministry as she shares the love of our God through the creative arts. Father, as we leave this place, we ask that you will indwell in us the, holy, the loving spirit and kindness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are forever in your service.